This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on Sirius XM. McCard carrying Basing at this point. Ben Alomar, Director of Sports Analytics at ESPN. You stood next to Big Poppy be like, he's just one of us, man. <laughs> That's kind of a big deal and shows you a lot about the randomness of sports. Rick Peterson, longtime pitching coach for the major leagues. This is Warden Moneyball's post-game podcast. This is Cade Massey, host of Wharton Moneyball, and you're listening to our podcast. We air live on Business Radio, Sirius XM, Channel 132, every Wednesday, 8 to 10 Eastern. Enjoy this week's show. Gentlemen, good morning to you. Good morning. Good morning, Cade. Cade Massey hosting here this morning with the whole crew. My buddy, Zadi Weiner. Good morning. Though he is slow with the good morning this <laughs> yes. morning. Shane Jensen and Eric Bradlow. Faculty all here at the Wharton School and collaborators here for almost five years. We are going to do a normal show this morning with guests at the bottom of this hour and the top of the next hour that one of our guests is in studio. It's always fun. It's always a little bit of extra when we got somebody in studio. And then we have open lines here in the first half hour. And the last half hour, we have a lot of sports to talk about. Of course, this is Super Bowl week, so I suspect we'll do some talking about that. But, gentlemen, I am curious, as always, what has caught your eye in the world of sports? Well, so I had a general statistical question for everybody here, but it relates to a sporting event I just watched. So I was one of those people that got up at 3.30 in the morning to watch Djokovic play Nadal in the finals of the Australian that Open. Is, that is commitment. It is commitment. Well, I love tennis, as you guys know. And the final score was Djokovic won 6-3, His greatest defeat over Nadal. And then I started to wonder, so there's one of two possibilities. One is Djokovic played extraordinarily well. Yeah. The other is that Nadal has gotten measurably worse. Now, Nadal has come back from injury. This was his first tournament in five months. He played no top 10 players on the way to the finals because Federer got eliminated earlier in the draw. And so how, as statisticians, since many of the mathematical models we build, we talk about this all the time on Wharton Moneyball, ELO models have the difference in strengths between the teams. How can we assess, if at all, did Djokovic play well, which, by the way, he had 35 winners and nine unforced errors. Did Djokovic, did Djokovic play well, or did Nadal play poorly? How can we ever assess that in you know, kind of paired comparison models that have a difference. Great. So uh, my suggestion would be, hey, you baseball people are kind of ahead of everybody else. So baseball, I bet, baseball analytics, sabermetricians can give us some tips on how to do this. Well, in baseball, you have all this individual performance information, and you can almost predict how many runs you're going to score, how well you're going to do, just looking at your side. So it's the most predictive game in terms of looking at the box score, who's going to win. Does tennis have the equivalent? Yeah, I mean, I think you kind of mentioned some of these things, things like unforced errors, stuff like that. I mean, like uh, serving accuracy, all these types of things. I mean, there's kind of peripheral... That's where I thought that, you were going because of the like balls in play kind of metrics. They kind of, I think baseball's yeah. done a better job, just maybe because it's possible, of of parsing individual contributions in a way that maybe we could do in tennis. Well, I mean, I mean there's two things. There's, there's there's a lot of different individual contribution measures, and they correlate highly with the thing that you want, which is runs and and wins. Um, in tennis, I don't know how highly these types of things correlate as well as you would. Like, is unforced errors, you know, particularly service, associated service with, those, you know, right. like if with, you look with at, outcome? If you look at the number of, of successful first serves or the first serve percentage, 
for, uh, for sort of success, unforced errors, how well do those correlate with success in the overall match? Ex- and I'll bet it's extremely high. Extremely, extremely high. high. Particularly yeah. considering that the service game is so important and, 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 and holding it and dominating that is so important. And there's probably a, 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 a reverse side that also has some statistic that, that is also pretty Yeah, good. the one measure so, that meant the most to me was actually, so Nadal apparently has changed his service motion, as has Djokovic. Djokovic, a big article about about Djokovic doing it too. Nadal served faster in the uh, Australian Open than he had like in years, and Djokovic broke him like almost every time he served. I mean, if you look at a score... Isn't Djokovic famous for his return game? He's considered the greatest returner of all time. You know, maybe they put Jimmy Connors in that, maybe Andy Murray, but I mean, Djokovic would be considered... How much of that is just his size and his ability to reach? Well, first of all, he's not he's large. He's a tall man, but he's six two. He's not like he's one of these He's an- only six two? Yeah. I thought he was much No. Taller. He's it's not like he's six four, which Andy Murray is. It's not like he's you know six how, eight, how does like, that go his, there, yeah. uh, uh, like Yvonne Lendl is the one that I always think of as being really gigantic kind no. of no, pre, no, 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 no. Yvonne Lendl was six look. feet or six oh, one. Yeah. He just <laughs> played against McEnroe, who's <laughs> yeah. five ten. Yeah. Connors yeah, was he, five ten. He just played in a And he had that steely McEnroe five ten, five eleven. They list him at five eleven and a half, but I've I've met John McEnroe and I'm five eleven and a half and he's not. That's a little bit of a boast. A little bit of a boast. Yeah. Under what conditions did you meet? That's awesome. When did you meet McEnroe? There was you know the tennis events that happened out at Villanova, and so he plays in some of these you know like professional where they create teams like him, Venus Williams, right. etc. And I got I knew somebody. I got to go down on the court. I just shook his hand and said, "Nice to meet you." Uh, yeah. That's great. And so you're reporting that you were actually a little bit taller than him. I'm definitely taller than John McEnroe. I'm not report. I mean, there's no chance that he's no. taller than I am. But all again, I was just wondering. I was just wondering again. No, no, statement. I just thought it was an interesting statistical yeah. problem. Like, like yeah. for example, we have the Super Bowl coming up. Let's imagine the Patriots win the game, which I'm predicting, and let's say they win by 10, 14 points, which is a number they've never won a Super Bowl by. That would by. be nice. Yeah, that would be fine. But how do we know then if they've played well? Or just the Rams played poorly. Or maybe the Rams played fine, just the Rams are not a very good team. Like, how, What can we assess, since it's always a paired comparison well, in these types of I competitions? I think it's much harder in football than... Baseball may be the easiest. And I think tennis seems you know, a game where you've got some pretty good signals on what, how a guy's playing independent of the other player. Now, it's never completely independent, because even his mental state is going to be a function of what's going on on the other side of the net. But with football... Yeah, that's an interesting question. Like, what can you say in football that's ever truly independent of the opponent? What's well, the thing? What's the thing we can best say? Well, I would say from an advanced analytics perspective, we know, for example, like if the let's take the quarterback position just for yeah. a second. Is the quarterback putting the ball? Quarterback accuracy. Quarterback that's probably accuracy. one of the few things yeah, you can. Yeah, but then you have to condition on his how protection. Much, how much? Yeah, no, no. Yeah. But you can. We can condition on that now, can't okay. we? Yeah, but is okay. he getting protection because the other side's defense is not not quite up to it, or you know, you know, everything just completely iterative. And it does depend on scheme. Is he getting protection because they're Are dropping they a bunch of exactly. defensive backs? Well, back you need there. you need both. Then can, can you need to condition both on his protection yeah. and how how close the coverage is on the backs. By the time yeah. you've done that, you've kind of control for defense. Would well, we agree that the easiest? position might be the kicker? Yeah, kicker by yeah. far. You could say field goal. <laughs> field how goal. the punter, how yeah. the punter do? How yeah. the punter do? The punter I mean, would be a yeah. good one. The, yeah. um, but there's so few. I mean, That's about it, though. Ki- kickers make almost everything, well, so there's very very, very oh. little variance. Oh, oh, they do. I mean, it's their their rates are so high. You, you know, well, they're, they're, that's one thing that's different about punters, and, uh, and there's punters pretty good variation variance, on yeah. punters. Uh, you know, we could, we could evaluate coaches. We don't think about them as, as – 
uh, necess- yeah, it's a different way of thinking about the game. But coaches, we have a pretty good sense of how aggressive a game plan they called, mm-hmm. where aggressiveness is generally considered a good thing. Yeah. So you can assess that relatively independently. I had another thing that kind of caught my eye, which is we've been talking about, this is Adi Weiner has brought up two weeks ago, and then we talked about it last week, the idea of entropy, and one of the things you have to have is uncertainty. Yeah. Hold on. Seth, if we can't use that word without defining Lack it, so. of predictability okay. so, is a much better or, yeah. term for that. Right. And so I was wondering... I know this is one of those Princess Bride, if I think that he thinks that he thinks that I think. <laughs> I was just wondering, since the Patriots have been so successful, matter of fact, they have the two longest drives in the in the history of the playoffs the last couple weeks, meaning like 18-play, yeah. eight-minute drives to start the game. Oh, in time. Yeah, in time. Time and downs. I, in time and downs. Yeah. I'm wondering if, in some sense, everyone's like, well, Belichick is going to come out with something different, therefore I'm going to prepare for that. And I think Belichick's not going to come out with something different. I think what you're going to see is the running defensive Patriots. I think they're going to say, we don't believe the Rams can stop us in that game. Yeah. And I think you're going to see, in some sense, the other team may actually try to over-predict that Belichick's going to try okay, something that, different because of his creativity, but I actually don't think right, so that that's what they're going to do. Let's, well, let's put some numbers on this. All right, yeah. so what is what is the... Uh, we have some Patriot fans here. So what is uh, what do the Patriots typically do with in their pass percentage? What do you... Well, we do about, have data. Matt Dan yeah. provide us league, some data. Let's start with league average. So league average is around 60% uh, oh, passing? I would have said 60, yeah. yeah. Yes. All right, so what are the Patriots relative to league average in terms of well, passing? Well, in the playoffs, the Patriots have been running... Over More. 50% of the yeah. time. So, they're, so, so are you predicting that they're going to continue to do that? Are I they am. Gonna revert? Do I we am. know what their, what their season yeah, average I, was? Is that something? Is that a number we have? Well, I mean, I think the most interesting thing about the Patriots is they are relatively predictable in terms of their how their play calling matches up with the personnel yes. on the field. So they're, they're two main running backs, Sonny Michelle and James White are very different kinds of running backs. When Sonny Michel is in, they run a running play like something. He he is going to be involved in a running play something like 80% of the time. When James White is in, he's going to be involved in a passing play like 80% of the time. It's very that's surprising predictable. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just not in a way, I guess, that's defensible or, or whatever. I mean, that that's essentially what they did against Kansas City, and Kansas City had trouble stopping that. So I think the, the Patriots, at least this iteration of the Patriots, are set up... Uh, you know, as this power running sort of team, and they're kind of essentially daring the competition to stop them. So the their their average this year was fifty five percent. So if we're right that the league yeah. base rate is sixty, they're a little bit run have, run heavy compared and, to league. And then in the playoffs, they were even more run heavy. And so Bradlow is predicting. A well, significant running game coming out of the, out of the Patriots. That's certainly what and they've done like, the last few weeks. Well, also the the Rams' rush defense is poor. Poor. Yeah. This is they ranked twenty fifth in the league this year in the NFL. Yeah. So tell me about that because I haven't paid a How attention to is say. That? Well, the thing that's odd about that Audi yeah. is that they have a couple of the premier defensive linemen yeah. in the league. Three of the top, two of the top ten for sure, but three. If, you know, uh, Aaron Donald, everyone considers the best. And Dominic and Sue, probably top 10, top 15. Mm-hmm. And then Michael Brockers. I mean, they've got three of the top 20 defensive linemen in the league. So do they have that reputation disproportionately because of their ability to rush the passer? Exactly. Yes. Yes. Okay. yes. Like uh, the, the ability to generate interior pressure is, is, is interior something pressure. That, that, you know, they can do better probably than any other team in the league, which is, you know, again, and this is kind of, you know, what teams have sort of noticed is successful against Brady is that if you generate interior pressure, he doesn't play as well. I mean, that's... In- interior any... as opposed to the classic coming around uh, the edge. Exactly. So, okay. so, so, you know, Brady 
seems to be somewhat exceptional in his ability to avoid edge kind of pressure. He can step, you know, around the pocket and stuff like that better than most quarterbacks. And also he's very quick release. Um, whereas interior pressure, it's harder to do that. And, you know, the thing is most teams are challenged in terms of their ability to actually get that kind of interior pressure. Right. The Rams can do it. Whether they can do it fast enough to, you just, know, right. I mean, I, Brady, I, understand we'll it's, I understand it's matchups, but let's just remember last week's, or two weeks ago, stat against Kansas City. Kansas City was the number one defensive team in the NFL in terms of sacks, and they had how many against the Patriots? Zero. Zero. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, again, no, no, I'm saying you have no, to like put some yeah. stock in that. So, so, let, I, I've, 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 let me give you one wrinkle on that, though. Sacks, are, is this, it's a little bit like goals in soccer. They don't happen that often, and if you rely only on the yeah. outcome, then you're missing some other information. No, no, so, they're, they're, so, for example, you can, consider, you can consider hurries. Yeah, or number and of pressures, that's press, right. And even like hitting the quarterback. Mm-hmm. And those if those things turn, turn out to be more predictive yeah. and more reliable. And so you can look at hurries and hits and say, what's the expected number of sacks given hurries and hits? And that's KC, a great point. And KC has a very high residual, positive residual Versus that expectation, so they've kind of outperformed. All of this is to why say, did this, why is which this is taken, usually the case when taken, you're at the top of the, uh, why the is list. This, but why has this taken five years? Well, this is the first time I've heard this from you, and this is an absolutely great statistic <laughs> well, to look at. It's yeah. the pr- Hurries it's and pressures. No, no, the expected the deviation from the expect. Well, if I, you some, I mean, I understand you're saying if random. you're top ranked. Yes, if you're top ranked, you you're going to expect residual, a, po- yes. a positive residual. That we've heard in the last five years. I'm talking about, I'm talking about Cade's point, which is why haven't we ever heard about this? Because I think it's I think a we're, great point. We're, we're only slowly getting yeah. smarter. I mean, we've we've talked about this principle where if the outcome measure is super noisy, then can you look at something more fundamental? And we've seen that happen in other sports. I mean, baseball. I leads. think it's only really in the last year or two that I've sort of you've seen things like number of pressures, number of Have hurries, you seen that, that type of stuff. Is that a stat? Put, put it off, oh, for up sure. on the TV. Oh, so is there a database? Yeah. yeah. I mean, okay. oh. oh no, yeah. they'll show it during the, like they'll show Brady's stat line, then yeah. they'll say. Hurries, pressures, knockdowns, number of hits, number of hits, and this is directly analogous to what we see in soccer, where now they have you know expected goals saved by goalies. So it's not just how many goals he gave up versus shots on goals. Like given shots on goal, there's an expectation for a certain number that would go through. So now you can look at his performance as a residual versus expectation. And those expectations are spatially, you know, are, 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 are spatially informed as well. It's sort of, you know, where the shots are coming from and stuff like that. So, so by the way, I mean, this is we. This is the kind of thing that we hope trickles down to non-sports yeah. organizations over time. Like, what what is the more fundamental performance measure that's less noisy, so we can reward and punish something that's you know more reliable than just these outcomes? Yeah. Yeah. Look, with teaching ratings conditional on the number of students in the class as opposed to just straight up teaching ratings. Oh, that's interesting. So you say the smaller the class, the 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 better the rating probably yeah mm-hmm. which yeah. is which is a perverse incentive because we want classes to be popular that te- people want to yeah, yeah. but of course there's two reasons for that one could be you teach better to smaller classes the other could be it's a self-selection process yeah, no, and the people right. that self-select yeah, themselves really, into a smaller class really I mean, we look at these kinds student, of issues student all the time student compositions really yeah, what yeah, you want to condition I, I, i've on. seen i've done analyses of this size but it's, it's it happens a lot i mean we had a we have a, a particularly with a young new professor who will do quite poorly in front of a gigantic group but do fantastically with a small well, maybe group. you want to put shake your new professor's in smaller classes. We should. Put smaller we caps should. to get them going. Yep. But this, you know, sales organizations do this. They don't only reward on sales dollars, even though that's a, obviously a critical one, but they, they're interested in the processes that lead up to that. So calls and visits and all the things you do to cultivate a relationship, those, f- for some organizations, are in the performance 
management system. You know what's interesting? You know, this discussion has really said, let's imagine there's two possible Super Bowl games that could happen. One is the historic, here's how you beat the Patriots. You beat them with pressure up the middle. The game's going to be 17-16, 20-17. Or it's the other possibility. It's last year's Super Bowl. Yeah, which which there's is no defense there's at all. There's no defense at all, <laughs> and the score's 48-40 yeah. to 40 or whatever the final was in last year's Super Bowl. Yeah, what, the, how much, as uh, some the of Eagles didn't the punch, the, the Eagles never punted in last year's No, I know. So I'm saying, how much weight do you put on the possibility, forget who wins the game, that it's that type of Super Bowl versus the old, let's call it Giant Patriot Super Bowl or oh, I th- Patriot Rams Super Bowl or Bills Giants from back no, in the I, old I, Belichick day. I well, think it's more likely to be kind of the shootout Super Bowl, I yeah. think, than the defensive. Well, what one. do you think of the over under? I mean, just based on based on how you know the Patriots have played most games this season. Um, I mean, yeah, their defense has looked impressive in the last couple games, no doubt about it, but they are not, I think, still a defensively strong team. I mean, of the, they are more defensively but strong neither than the Rams. So what do you, what do you think? So the over-under is 56. You must think that's low. I think that is low. So the spread is two and a half or so, 56. We're talking about a 20... 29-27 kind of forecast by mm-hmm, the, by the mm-hmm. bookmakers. But what happens if the Patriots play the style we're talking about, which is, you know, eight-minute drives, take eight minutes. Yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, you know, you scored. Great. Yeah, no, I, but I, and, how and many it, opportunities? Like, could this be a game where you say, let's just, I'd like to do what Adi says, you know, number of trials times base rate. Let's imagine that because of the length of the drives, both teams only end up having the ball a certain number of times. Okay, now how do I get to 29 points given I'm only going to have the ball six times? All right, so then I've got to score touchdowns, let's say, on four out of those six drives. Well, that's an extraordinarily high percentage of touchdown scores given the drives that I have. So that's the way I'm thinking about the game. It's a great way to think about it. I'd just push you on that being an extraordinarily high percentage given last year we saw one pump across the two Well, no, and and I think what what has to happen and for this to be kind of that shootout, and I think it's relatively likely, is maybe the Patriots get down early a little bit. Maybe there's a turnover or two in this first half. They get down early. They have to abandon that running game because they don't have time for it, and then it becomes a shootout. Well, I'll tell you a stat you probably have heard, Shane. Do you know in the eight Super Bowls that Tom Brady has played? He's only played eight, by the way. It seems like a lot more, but it's only eight. (laughs) Only eight. (laughs) Only eight. Do you know how many points the Patriots have scored total in the first quarter in those eight games combined? Not many. Oh, I would say, like, I don't know, across eight games, yeah. 30 points. Right. If you that cut low? off that zero, you're at the number. <laughs> what? Three? I just heard that statistic <laughs> coming in this morning. In eight games? Correct. I would That's have, two full I, games worth of play. I would have predicted I under, 50. I understand that. Yeah. The Patriots... Do not like people because the it came up on a different radio show. Brady's only as I was coming he's in. Playing from it behind, came, apparently. Well, no, it came up because you know Brady was talking about the pressure of the Super Bowl and you know, how much pressure. And it's a nice Super Bowl. He's got five in the bank. Yeah. And then the comment was, well, I don't know. Maybe a sign of pressure is the guy scores like five hundred points in the other three quarters, but in the first quarter. You know, maybe there is. I don't know if it's nerves, he's reading the other team, whatever it is. But they scored an extraordinarily low number of points in the first quarter. And that's a ridiculously low number. It, 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 it does seem like a Given low Given five number. wins yeah. also, it's yeah. a ridiculously low number. People say that the Pats are better than other teams at learning 
team's tendencies over the course of the game. And so you would expect, given that, that it would be increasing over the time of the game. And they might do a lot early mm-hmm. on just kind of an exploratory way. That's an alternative to the Well, notice. it has to be increasing. They've won a bunch of those. I know it eight. is. <laughs> More so than the average team, presumably. You know. But that's amazing that they've scored three in total. Now, yep. here's the question. How is that going to predict? So if, you, if we had to toss out how many points you think the Patriots would score in this particular first quarter would you do would you take the number one and eight three as a divided by eight and I <laughs> predict that is the number of points scored so so really uh, if you if you had to make an over under uh, on the number of points scored would you say zero or would you say well let me seven, ask, you, no, let me ask you a related no. question because you yeah. did this a couple weeks ago let's like in some sense we you were trying to predict this was related to the baseball hall of fame you were looking at the number of people that seemed to be over the threshold, yeah. but then you shrunk, it, shrunk back. it back. So let's even imagine we think that they're going to score 29 in the game. So average would be 7. Let's say it's uniform over the yeah. quarters, which is probably not true, but let's just say it is. Would you then say 7, or how would you use this auxiliary information to shrink it back? That's a good if, question. If at all. Would you shrink it back at all? Well, would you... so, so you'd say... Well, thing you have to argue, is there something fundamentally different about the first quarter? And I, I'll turn to football experts and ask that. Is there something fundamentally different, typically, about the number of points scored in the first quarter? Do they, they go slower? Is there is there? I, I think mostly tendency? no. If I, I, would, I would go just damn near uniform as a first guess. My you know, knowledge really, is uniform. I would, th- I would only... assume the fourth has more points scored just hurry because up. there's, I mean, you know, yeah, teams are hurried up and, and kind of, you know, so sometimes there, there's a cheap, lot of cor- there's a lot of games where the fourth quarter is a blowout and therefore they're garbage, not incentivized. Garbage, garbage no, but my intuition, garbage time points. My yeah. intuition no, but, might have been the opposite. Oh, I'm, I think what you're empirically saying is true, but let me just say the opposite. I kneel on the ball the last two minutes of the game, yeah. so it's really a 10-minute quarter in, or 13-minute quarter instead of a 15-minute quarter. Yeah, but there's also quarter. lots of uh, hurry-up um, offenses where you throw to the okay, sidelines. This, this is an empirically knowable This thing. is totally yeah. knowable, which is interesting because in baseball, the first inning is the, well, is the most scoring, you, but that's when the best hitters Well, let me ask up. you another thing so. about how you would shrink this because Shane brought this up last week. Let's imagine, I believe, I'm someone that says, I believe the Patriots are going to win this by 10. Great. Shane, how many Super Bowls have the Patriots won by 10? There's another None. None. So how would you shrink? Is so that I worth would shrink anything? That down. That is definitely worth something because that's something about pay, about Super Bowls in general that they tend to be closer than you would expect. What do you think is interesting is that is that, is that that's not true. Well, no, for, that, for a long time the, Patriots, the opposite was yeah, the Patriots ones. The Patriots ones are are, okay. are, are, are potentially now. The question is, is, there's only eight. I mean, that's, it sounds like a massive number for Super Bowls, but for sample sizes, eight isn't very big. So th- these things kind of go against each other. I would I would shrink it down. A little bit, but these I think these these two teams are fairly comparable, and I think that the the general standard deviation that we know on football games, which is on the point spread, is around thirteen to fourteen. I think that probably applies now, here too. Now, Kate, unless something's changed for most of the season, maybe it's even true now. Massey Peabody has had the Rams as the better team than the Patriots. Yes. If that still holds, yes. and there's a two-and-a-half-point favorite for the Patriots, yes. that would seem to be a missed pricing in some way, at least according to Massey Peabody. In, and not just according to us. I mean, the market's opened with the Rams as a favorite. The market's opened around plus two, yep. plus two or so, or minus two or so for the Rams, and then moved within an hour. Now, do we think that way? some That's of fine. that is due? By some, the, sorry. I just want to just put that in context. If Massey Peabody and all the other sharp systems have about two and a half favorite for the Rams. There's no home field advantage here. And the market has a two and a half point favorite for the Patriots. That's five points. Put that in perspective. That's exactly what the advantage was for Clemson 
during the college football championships. And five points... The, the edge. For the edge, the edge. And, and five points in a college match is actually less valuable because there's more spread than five points in a professional match. So if you believe the Sharps, people... I'm arguing here that... Audie may be texting me like he did with the Clemson <laughs> game. It is a good bet to be betting on the Rams So this is, I mean, this is the eternal quandary. Are, are the models missing something? Well, here's, here's something <laughs> you know, I was going to... Here you are. Well, I was going to... You're yeah. so cautious. Well, I was gonna it's ask, your model. I, was, I, 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 I bet that the modelers are the yeah. ones who best should know what they yeah. don't well, have. Well, here's the question. Exactly. Here's the question that people have asked. If you look... I know people... This is the problem with the arbitrariness. If you look since week 10, so the last eight games, six games plus the playoffs, Jared Goff has been a below-average quarterback. So people want to point out to the mm-hmm. non-stationarity of his performance that they've not been a very good team, actually, the last six or eight games of the season. As a matter of fact, his performance right, by right. every metric has degraded. So how would, whether it's Massey Peabody, NFL, uh, the uh, Power Index, the ESPN Power Index... How would would they? I mean, obviously they downweight earlier games, but and is it enough? Recency? Is it can, enough? Can I uh, jump in on this that before be you something answer? They're missing. I actually did an analysis in for my my seminar yesterday, and I tried to fit power rankings to the entire season without using a time component. So every game is treated equally, yeah. which is the easiest thing just, for a dumb person like me to do. Just with just without putting a shrinkage factor or anything like that. Just threw it in there, yeah. and then I. And then I correlated it with Massey P's body because I could get that easily. It's on the web. Thank you very much. And it, the correlation is actually very high. It's sure. about 0.9, which is what you sort of would expect. But where it's very different is teams that have looked differently in the first half and the second half. Yeah. Those were the biggest you know, divergences. Yeah. So whatever you're doing, it's, it's, it's important. You're thinking very importantly on those things. There's other factors. I'm only yeah. using points. I don't yeah. use anything else. That's right. And so, you, so any model is going to do – well, a good model will do some version of that. And then Eric's question is, is that enough? Because you're fitting that exponential for the average. Mm-hmm. You're minimizing across yep. all 32 teams. And the question is, okay, is there something – Especially different about about, about golf and the Rams, right. and it's pl- we, so you need a story, mm-hmm. now, but then of course you get yeah. pulled in by stories. <laughs> but what is what would be the theorized mechanism that that those guys have so, shown more more non stationarity? They've been less stable. I'll give you an I'll give you an explanation. Got, a story. I'll, yeah, let's now talk I've about got Todd Gurley. Todd, when when they could balance their attack. Jared Goff is a more effective quarterback, but if you count on, you know, they brought in C.J. Anderson, who was I, he was out of football, and he's played really well. But I'm saying Todd Gurley has been awful. I mean, he was out. He's been playing. He hasn't played well. People say his yeah. knee is injured again. So one argument could be they haven't had as balanced an attack. They're putting more pressure on Goff to make yeah. more throws. And I mean, that's there's yeah, evidence I mean, to my, suggest my, that. My answer was going to be that you know coaches have kind of figured out has have been able to scheme in a way Ooh. that like it puts Jared Goff at a disadvantage. And having not having Todd Gurley there is part of that. Really, well, you so know? I was going to ask mean, you to elaborate are, because that that's kind of always the answer to some sense is in, in some sense especially with a young quarterback yeah. that the league is catching up with him in some way why but why would it be with this is his third season it's his first season with mcveigh so it's possible that the mcveigh golf system is being figured out over time I yeah. mean, the league is ridiculously good at figuring as soon as one team shows an ability to inhibit it a little bit everybody else mimics yeah. that yeah and, and so I, it, I mean i think it has to do i think i, I think todd Gurley, whether he is kind of degraded in his own performance due to injury or something like that, I think that has a lot to do with it. I think that he having 
being a, a, a running back that can both run and catch passes makes their offense inherently more unpredictable when he's on the field and actually effective, right? And I think him not being on the field as often or not being as effective makes things more predictable. So I learned something this week that maybe is well known out there because I haven't been paying that much attention to it. But but my understanding from talking to a, a coach in the league is that McVeigh is not calling the play. McVeigh is calling the play in Goff's helmet at the line of scrimmage, unlike other teams. Yeah. Generally, what happens is a play is called in the huddle, and maybe you have a backup play that a guy can switch to. This is the this is the Brady system. Yeah, and it's that's different than when we think audible, like the old school audible, is you walk up and. You don't like what you see, and so you call a different play. Like, and you create that second play real time. You're calling it out. These days, what they typically have is two plays, and they go in with one, and then the, you, you'll see Brady tap his helmet. He's checking out of that to the second play that's always been already been called in the huddle. Yeah. Apparently, the Rams have a different system that that they don't call a play. They just walk up to the line of scrimmage, and then McVay calls the play in Goff's helmet real time. How does he communicate that to the team? Audibly? He's, yes. And, and even with all the noise? Actually, I saw an analysis of this because, you know, um, Peyton Manning yeah. now has this thing on ESPN Plus where he actually analyzes other quarterbacks. And to what Cade was saying, this week's was Peyton Manning analyzing Jared Goff at the line of scrimmage. Okay. And you could see him at the line. He's going like this. Uh, for those people on the radio, not on, <laughs> we're on the radio, he's putting his hands to his ears so he can hear the play being called, but not in the huddle when he's at the line. Yeah. And then you're seeing literally Peyton Manning's pointing out like 10 or 15 hand signals that he's giving to each player on the team at the line of scrimmage. And Peyton Manning was complimenting him for his ability as a young player to basically tell everybody else what to do at the line of scrimmage right. during the game. You, you see what's happening there with McVeigh. I mean, he basically, Goff is too young a quarterback to handle Correct. all of that decision-making at the line of scrimmage like a Peyton Manning could. And so McVeigh has come up with a way of essentially being Peyton Manning's... He's giving him Peyton Manning's head because he can do it on the sidelines and he's got all the tools of Jared Goff. Maybe related also, Shane, to your answer. I think what here's what I think always happens when you play Belichick, who I can forget him as a head coach. Let's remember, he's a defense, I mean, considered the greatest defensive coach. He will take away the Rams' plan A. Now mm -hmm. the question is, can Jared Goff have a plan right. B that is successful enough? And I think that's over the last eight weeks, that's what you've seen teams do. If Jared Goff is as good as he was, let's let him beat us with his plan B, and we'll live with the consequences. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And that's what I think Belichick will do in the Super Bowl. All right, fellas, that's been the first quarter of Wharton Moneyball. We still have three quarters to go. Come back and join us after the break. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. From Sirius XM Business Radio Studios here in Huntsman Hall, this is Cade Massey hosting this morning with the whole crew. Adi Weiner, Eric Bradlow, Shane Jensen. You guys can join the conversation. Give us a ring, 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866, or email us, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Hit us up on Twitter at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is the handle. You can follow us there or reach out to us, either one. We are in Super Bowl week, so we're doing Super Bowl things. First half hour was all Super Bowl. We'll come back to it, I'm sure, in the end of the show. Going to get some picks. People have to go on record. We need some picks. We're, you know, oh, yeah. we got to get back to our over under thing. And in the non football months of the year, sad and bleak as they are, we do have these over under segments. And we. Started keeping record, started keeping score, and we're about to get back to that. Maybe we'll start the 2019 over-under record with uh, the Super Bowl pricks. We've got that coming up in about an hour. 
In the next half hour, we are delighted to welcome back Eric Lorig. Eric is a former NFL fullback and tight end. He played for the Bucks and Saints. He uh, went to Stanford. Played actually played defensive lineman at Stanford before converting to the offensive side. I'm sure that you're like the envy of defensive linemen everywhere that that worked out that way. Uh, Eric is also a full time MBA student here at Wharton. We've had him here as a guest before. Eric is in studio, which is always fun. Eric, welcome back. Hey, thanks for having me. Delighted to have you. Fun week to have you, of course, with the Super Bowl coming up and with your boys just getting knocked out. I don't. I haven't recovered. In fact, I was a little. I don't think the nation's recovered from that. That was uh... so. You played for the Saints. You got relationships with some of these guys. You you brought in this football. Tell us about this football that you brought in this morning. Yeah, this this football was sent out on behalf of Drew Brees after he broke the touchdown record. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, the classy guy that he is, and then the professional that he is. He sent out a ball to everyone who's caught a touchdown in his career to help him break the record. And you know, I think I was sitting there studying for uh, stats. And then got this package in the mail, opened it up. I couldn't believe it. You know, it was a note and everything. And, and it wasn't uh, wasn't from your stats professor. No, <laughs> no, it's from it was, uh, it's from Drew Brees. It was yeah. a total surprise. It's total surprise. I didn't see it coming, but I'm not surprised either. Did you? Did was there any part of you whenever you read that he broke the record? Where you think, yeah, I contributed to that. I caught a few of those touchdown passes. Uh, yeah, you, just, I, you thought of it. Yeah, I, th- I think I think the way I thought of it was, you know, I can't believe I ended up catching a touchdown pass from a Hall of Famer. Right. I think that's how I thought of right. it. You know, from all the positions I played, and it's, you know, when you go through a football career, there's so many hurdles to go through. Yeah, you, you don't. It's hard to predict where you're going to end up. Right. Well, you bounced around more than most, right? So when you were recruited into Stanford, you, you'd played both sides of the ball in high school, probably. Yeah, exactly. I was a linebacker and I was a tight end. You okay. know, some schools recruited me as one position, some the other. And then mm-hmm. you get to Stanford, I played two positions there. You did play yeah. on both sides. Okay. Uh-huh. My first two years was a tight end. Then the second two years, we got Harbaugh and a new staff, I played defensive end. Mm-hmm. And then I got an NFL team who drafted me as a tight end, who liked me more there for tight end and special teams. And I end up as a tight end fullback hybrid who plays special teams. Okay. <laughs> How was it for you transitioning teams? You know, team, players move around so much, and I mean, they move around more than the average employee and sometimes to the outsider it's like it's odd to think you know one week you're in one locker room playing you know all about this team and these teammates and then you have to flip and it's usually not within a season but across seasons even you have to you know fly across the country move your family start in with a different team and then create that new thing how was it for you transitioning from the bucks to saints yeah that's a good question and i think uh, you could speak about college as well on that and going from a college locker room and then i did four years in tampa bay and two in new orleans and i'll tell you when i was moving from tampa bay to new orleans i underestimated that transition i thought it was going to be sort of uh, you know just in the scope of a football but but it's not you know there's a lot of environmental factors that you might not take into account that are part of preparation that are part of your routine that are part of your comfort level mm. when performing, that took more time than I expected uh, to go through when I got to New Orleans. So what, what's the, so that's fascinating. It makes a ton of sense. It connects to the rest of our lives. Anytime you move, I mean, you realize, oh, I had all these routines. Like I had gotten really efficient at many aspects of my life because of these routines you take for granted. And then you move, and all of a sudden they're interrupted. What's an example of a routine you were in as a professional athlete that got interrupted when you moved from Tampa Bay to New Orleans? Yeah, I think in terms of the playbook, just the visualization steps taken before games, before practices, uh, before walkthroughs, 
I sort of took it, um, granted, took for granted in Tampa Bay because I'd been in the system for so long, gotten used to working through those mentally mm-hmm. and very quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, and then when I got to New Orleans, it was a brand new playbook and a brand new system. And, and at that, it's, it's an intricate one. Mm-hmm. So going through the visualizations took a lot longer. There was a slower ramp up early on because mm-hmm. there were so many you know, variables going into it now versus the Tampa Bay one that you had to get used to thinking through new options. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That was one of them. Mm-hmm. So you're talking about the routine of, of the actual performance, but one of the things that it's interesting to use when you use the word routine is we've learned so much over the years of doing this show that the routine is one of the things that helps athletes prepare and, and, and perform at such a high level. And it also explains in, in part why they do so much better at home than they do away because it's they have this not only routine on the field, but routine in preparation mm-hmm. at home, which they lose when they have to travel. And that, that becomes difficult. And so so in, in the Super Bowl, both teams are traveling. And that, I think, is interesting because that it, it's not clear to me that, that one team has an advantage. And, and I think if you had to think from a scientific perspective, it's probably um, you, you'd think that the L.A. Rams are in a better are in worse shape because they have to come across country. And do, do you know when, when they actually get there? What time do team, when teams play away? When, when do you arrive? Yeah, I think it's a good point, uh, and it's it's sort of put it back down to statistics. Is it's environmental variance, right? Mm-hmm. So the routine's very comfortable because there's not as much variance, so it doesn't freak us out as athletes, right? Yeah, yeah. We, get, we get stuck in those things because we try to keep the anxiety well, low. The, the athletes are always talking about how routine is important to them on every level, and you just mentioned that. So yeah, and you know, and I think that's what it comes down to is controlling the environment so much that you're comfortable just thinking about the game, and then in terms of the Super Bowl location. Yeah, uh, people are getting there. Probably. Sunday, most of the I, I think I saw the flights <laughs> arrive a week before. Oh, oh, a week Sunday. before. Oh, a week, week before. before. Okay. A week before because of yeah. all the press and media and everything yeah. else. I think both teams arrived on Sunday. Yeah, they have a lot more obligations to go through, uh, more events, so they're going to get there a little early, get acclimated to the time. Uh, during the regular season, we would fly. It was a, really a twenty-four hour business trip. We'd fly there on Saturday afternoon. You know, sleep, be in routine, wake up, play, leave. as uh, much quicker. Could you tell us about since you know this? lack of pass interference or helmet-to-helmet hit. Was there a time in your career where a game that you played in was essentially decided by, like, a single call like this and if or something like that? And then how could you deal with that? Like, I, I would never get over it. <laughs> yeah. I, if I was Drew Brees, I'm thinking, I was in the Super Bowl. And you know what? Would have been a favorite in the Super Bowl. I don't know how, if you're a competitor like that, how do you get over that? Did anything like that ever happen to you? Yeah, I'm jogging my memory. I didn't have that happen to me. I've definitely had calls that that occurred, not in critical situations, that I felt that way. And the way I chalk it up now, looking back on it, seeing the Super Bowl situation, is that you know football. There's got to be still they they maintain a human element to it. They almost want these little mistakes Mm -hmm. to happen. Probably not at this magnitude, Mm -hmm. and there should be something built in at this level of the playoffs to um, to review because the stakes are so high. But Mm -hmm. you see leagues. You're not reviewing everything because they yeah. want to keep that or the human fact that element. We don't, we, we, we don't have robots calling balls and strikes and baseball. Yeah. They clearly want that human element somehow in there. Yeah, yeah, ex- exactly. And I think if I'm Drew Brees, you know, if I'm Drew Brees, you know, I'm a machine, and you know, I'm I'm a um, a trained athlete, you know, to the high order. So I I don't think past <laughs> probably a week he's feeling um, as emotional maybe that he might have early on because they deserve to be in the, in, in the Super Bowl. Uh, we all know that everyone has come out and said, you know, that call should have been reversed. And assuming the situations would have take uh, would have unfolded like they thought, they should be in the Super Bowl. Does there, is, I assume there'd be now if you're the Rams, you're now you're the actual team in the Super Bowl. 
And let's even imagine you're a Rams player and you're thinking, you know, wow, we got lucky to be here. There, I assume there's no, there would be, maybe I should ask you, is there any impact now? So the game's happening. Are you thinking in the back of your mind, wow, it really should have been the Saints here? There's no way they're thinking that. They're like, you know, things happen. We're here. We're going to do our best. Or are they actually in the back of their mind thinking, you know, wow, we're lucky to be here? There's no way they're thinking about it in that way. Yeah, yeah it okay. is. No, uh, yeah. You know, it what? is a, a you know break of luck. Uh, it, it's a break. You know, everyone gets breaks. They got a break. <laughs> yeah, one thing I know about professional athletes, or just from interviewing, is that they tend to not doubt themselves. And so what you're describing, the Rams aren't saying, well, we shouldn't have been here, we got lucky. There's no way they're saying yeah. that because they're professional athletes. And if you start to doubt yourself, that's, that's even if you're, even, and here's the thing that's, that's tricky about it. If you are analytical enough to actually look at statistics, you have to start, you have to doubt yourself because you don't always succeed. But yet it, it seems to me that every athlete expects when they say, how confident are you in winning? You're always 100% confident. Mm-hmm. Well, talk about miscalibration. Mm-hmm. I mean, you don't win all your games, but it seems that the athletes are, are really are 100% confident, and I would guess the Rams are. They don't doubt themselves. They got breaks. Yeah, that's how it goes. But they could, you could probably point to things that happened earlier in the game that didn't go their way, mm-hmm. and, uh, and and things and things kind of balance out. This was an egregious call. No, no one – I mean, it probably is one of the uh, – the most extreme, certainly by well, leverage. Well, it's, it's, it's a combination of being just visually, obviously egregious, as well as the consequence of it being that, like, you know, basically it was in a situation where it, you know, if, if it had been called the other way, the Saints, with whatever, 99% probability would have won the game. So what about that concept, Eric, This the, the difference between knowing at a high level, as an analyst, there's chance involved. And, you know, ultimately you're not really fully responsible for what happens versus as an athlete needing to compete, essentially needing to feel that you're wholly responsible. And, of course, the coach kind of plays some kind of middle ground where coaches and general managers where they need to make decision making with the full appreciation for chance. And yet they need to motivate players as if there's no role of chance. How did you think about that? And, and, and do you think about it any differently now that you're more in an analytical world? Yeah, that's a that's a good point and a good question. And, and the way we're trained as as athletes, as amateur and professional, is to just focus on the performance and just focus on the execution of the game plan. Um, you know, really, I think it's only chalked up to a few players to have any sort of strategic decisions on the on on the field. And the reason is because you know there's a lot of disorder going on in the field. There's potential too, so they only want a couple of people or maybe one to actually make calls that might adjust. So our role very much was to to execute the play and execute the game within the game. You know, there's really four four layers of football and, and one layer that people don't talk about often is the game within the game, which is players playing the game against each other outside of the strategy. Um, so we focus a lot on that. Oh, what are the four layers? Four layers of football. Well, you have okay. The first layer would be you have the coaches. They're playing chess against each other. Mm-hmm. They're they are playing a game of of calls against each other. Mm-hmm. That's one. The second one is the strategic game that's being played. So the strategy that one coach is carrying out against the other coach. That's the second. Actually, the two strategies interacting. The third is the physical component. So physically matchups one on one, like mm-hmm. how I'm going to block this guy to get the ball out. And then there's the fourth, which is game within the game. So this guy, I block this guy like this, this last play. Well, this play, I'm going to make him think I'm going this, doing this, but I do that. Mm-hmm. So, oh, so that's it's almost like fourth. you're the coach of your little game with inside the game. Yes. <laughs> right. But all that goes right. into it. So, so, let me, we, so let me ask you a quick question. As a player, the, the play is called. It has to happen all the time where you say, that's the play? 
that's the play we're calling right here. How do play? Assuming that's what I'm saying is true, that you sometimes, as a player, you even doubt the play that's called. What do you do with that? Like, yeah. you, I know you execute it. Your job is to execute it as best you can. But tell me, as a professional athlete, when you're about to do a play where it's not even that you don't think the play has worked, but like you're even doubting that that's the right play call in this situation. How do you deal with that? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, does that happen, actually? I mean, yeah. yeah. It, does. it does. It does happen. Come on. It, yeah, of course it does. But how frequent do you say, oh, my God, this is crazy? You know, I, it's like second and 20, they run a drop player <laughs> up the middle or something like that. Yeah, it, it happens more so in retrospect after the game, but there, there are definitely circumstances where it happened during the game. And I remember being in huddles and, and people who were more tapped into, like, the passing concept – um, maybe a quarterback or wide receiver, they get a little more sensitive about it because I think they're keyed in to how the strategy is being carried out. From the run perspective, I think that sometimes happens, but that's such like a, a physical task that you're usually just locked in and you just do you know, do what you're trained to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you don't have that as much. Uh, but the passing game, there's a little more time to you know think about how I look, how I'm doing, how I'm mm-hmm. running. There's, there's no time for that in the physical game. Yeah, it comes up. <laughs> it's funny. That's exactly the way we think about these wide receivers, how I look. Um, we're talking to Eric Lorig, of course. Eric is a longtime uh, football player at both the collegiate and college levels. He played fullback and tight end for the Bucks and Saints. He's now a full-time student here. He's a first-year MBA here at the Wharton School. Super Bowl week, of course, so we're interested in these football questions. We talked before you came in about Brady versus Goff and plays being called at the line of scrimmage and the different systems p- teams use we we were i'm curious your reaction like can you what can you tell us uh, from being on the line or being in the backfield on how that is communicated and what who is good at that and, who, and what determines whether that goes effectively versus ineffectively how can you get advantage by using it that kind of thing yeah that comes down to quarterbacks and i think using drew Brees as you know the, the prime example of the best they do that through preparation, and he, Drew Brees was a guy who's put hours in throughout the week. Even when I was there, he was you know he's in the season part of his career. He's hours going to the preparation so that when a play is called, and you guys mentioned this earlier, there's sometimes three plays built into one. And if the higher you get as a quarterback uh, conceptually, the more plays you can adjust to based off of the defense. So the best ones come out there at the line of scrimmage, and I think you guys were talking about Goff doing this a little bit with the coach. That makes sense because they're still bringing him along and developing that. But a guy like Breeze, a guy like Manning, Brady, they're doing this these quick computations in the huddle trying to get out there as fast as possible to diagnose the situation. But then, Eric, you as a player have to listen to what they're doing. And I mean, it, it is, I would think it'd be nerve-wracking because on the one hand, you're trying to assess what you're looking at across the line of scrimmage at the defense. On the other hand, you're having to pay attention to what Breeze is going to call because you might go right, you might go left, you might go out for a pass, you might block. How is that process? Yeah, it's it's a it's a stress-oriented process. You know, that's a limited amount of time and there's stress involved. So, you know, it comes down to training and going through those mental reps. Why? That's why the mental reps become so important is you literally go – through the entire play in a 15-second visualization. And and I, I've never looked into research or anything, but I really think that had something to do with success of my career was a, being able to, before games and before practices, literally go through the visualization of executing the play based off of different situations that I was going to get. So if they called a play, I knew these three audibles could be called, and I would go through each one. Do you When you train for that, are you with a coach, or you do this on your own? Yeah, so early on, when they're installing plays and strategy throughout the week earlier part of the day is is dedicated to walkthroughs where you see every situation so here's the play 
and then here's the three different defenses we're predicting to see. So on this on this defense we run this, on this defense we run that, and and so forth. So you have an idea and you physically get to go through it, and then you just go through that faster and faster throughout the week. Mm-hmm. Well, one thing you just mentioned that was very interesting is the idea that if a quarterback is seasoned enough to not have to, to skip the huddle, they can get out to the line right away and gives them way more time to assess the defense. Because I, I guess is the, the further, the more time you take with your group in the huddle off the line, there's less time mm-hmm. remaining to look around, and that's got to be a huge advantage mm-hmm. to to be able to sit there for what's the how long how long do you have between plays? So it's a twenty five twenty five second, seconds twenty five seconds. So if you can get out there and, and, and it maintain, also turns on the offensive uh, staff. Then some staffs are better at getting that stuff out to them quicker. Mm-hmm. Um, Eric, we talked about the rush that the Pats will face. They've got this. The the Rams have this ridiculous line, and they're especially known for this interior rush. Can you talk about it as a as an offensive Player who had both pass catching and pass blocking responsibilities, what that's like when you're when you're knowing you might have to chip somebody or pick up Sam Darnold as he comes up the middle and, and Aaron I'm, Donald, I'm, Aaron Donald, not Sam Donald, of course, <laughs> Aaron Donald. Um, and, or what is it like to, have to go? You think you have to, you have to, might have to block Sue as he comes through? I mean, good lord! So tell us a little bit about that pass blocking, especially facing a team like the Rams. Yeah, I think the first thing I'll say is defensive lines win Super Bowls. Uh, and that can that can be confirmed through hearing coaches talk. That's confirmed through watching uh, high level defensive lines play against other teams. That position in particular has the power to to really affect an offensive play. So I'm not surprised at all that this defensive line is in the Super Bowl. Uh, first thing. Second thing is if you get a chance, maybe not the Super Bowl, but the next NFL game you watch, just watch the D line the entire time. These guys are extraordinary athletes. They are big strong and fast and some of them kind of move like ballerinas i'm not kidding uh these guys are swift um and in terms of blocking them yeah i i can't say there were too many situations where i ended up on a on a on one one on one there are when you'd shift around as a tight end or fullback they would end up in these wham plays they called it where you kind of shifted around and then suddenly the ball snapped and you would just crash down on a nose tackle just get maybe an inch just make sure he doesn't (laughs) blow it up and then the running back squeaks by I think I did that a couple times. Uh, it's a debate whether it was successful or not. <laughs> yeah, but oftentimes as a as a pass blocker, you will get to help the the offensive lineman, and that's a big one. You'll watch. I'm sure there are plays where you see the running backs two on one with a chip, like in a serious chip. I mean, you really got to throw him off his track for the offensive tackles, especially mm-hmm. if the matchup is weak. Meaning, if, if right. Aaron Donald or if a DN who's having you know, six, seven sack seasons up on your know, right tackle or left tackle who's kind of okay doing shaky, then they're going to want a running back on a chip every mm-hmm. single play. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that was a function of just timing up and being able to get a good slam on him so he knows you're there. Mm-hmm. And that actually affects whether or not he gets to the quarterback. Just that second, right, that makes a big difference, and, and they'll chalk that up in, in gameplay. Mm-hmm. So if you have to think about the two most experienced people on the Patriots, being Belichick and obviously Brady, which one, in your experience, experience is worth more? Would you rather have an experienced coach? Let's imagine we could do a switch. Let's imagine Belichick could be coaching Goff or McVeigh <laughs> could be coaching Brady. Which of those two, in your experience, like who's worth more, the experience of the head coach or the experience of the quarterback? Mm, that's really hard to answer. Um, really hard. It's a good question. I My personal preference would be... 
Ah man, it's, it's hard. You know, I, I want to <laughs> say Belichick. I do. It is. I think yeah. it. It could be a toss up. I, I would like to say Belichick because he's he's been through the situation so many times and knows how to prepare for it and knows how what kind of calls work at this final level. But he's not playing the game. You know, as a player, I'm like, <laughs> All right. what am I talking about? We're building up coaches to be too much. What are we doing? Tom Brady. You know, Tom Brady's. You know, he's the guy. He's he's in there doing it, executing, calling the plays. Um, and so, you know, part oh, of I don't take to, what you're saying as a slam on Brady. I take as what you're saying is as a, a, as a compliment to Belichick because you wouldn't say that about any, any other yeah, coach, exactly. probably. Right. And I you're guess talking about good. the greatest quarterback, and so you really have that matchup. I don't think it would be anyone else. Yeah. So, fellas, we're down just the last minute or so, not even a minute. How will you take in the Super Bowl, and do you have a rooting yeah, interest here? Yeah. What, what's yeah. the forecast? That's uh, rubber to the road. Can we get some skin in the game? Yeah, so you know, now I'm Philadelphia-based. Uh, my girlfriend, her family's from Philly, so I've been watching football with them lately, uh, which watching the Eagles, Eagles game is pretty funny. <laughs> so we listen, you know, core of the combos about the Eagles, and the Eagles not being in the Super Bowl, and the Eagles issues, and the Eagles that. Uh, but I'm watching with them. Uh, I am predicting a L.A. Rams victory. Hey, look at that. Yeah. Wow. And it's not because I'm from L.A. Maybe it is. Uh, <laughs> but I'd like to see them you know, just beat the Patriots. I'm tired of this. <laughs> All you New England people, I'm tired of you, too. <laughs> All right. That's Eric Lorick. Eric, thank you for joining us. Always a pleasure. Good luck with your studies and enjoy the game this weekend. All right, thank you very much for having me. Eric Lorig, former NFL fullback and tight end. He played for the Bucks and Saints after coming out of Stanford. He's a full-time NBA here at the Wharton School. That is the first half of Wharton, um, of Wharton Moneyball. We'll be back after the break. Uh, the way that Saints are running the football. Malamalu back in there. And the catch is made. And it is a touchdown to the fullback, Eric Lorig. That is his first touchdown this season. Second touchdown throw. You're listening to Wharton Moneyball on Business Radio. Welcome back. Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Cade Masty this morning hosting with the whole crew. My buddies Shane, Adi, and Eric. Shane Jensen, Audie Weiner, Eric Bradlow, professors all here at the Wharton School. You guys can join us. If you're listening live, give us a ring. 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. If you're not listening live, we are replayed a few times over the course of the week. Drop us an email, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or hit us up on Twitter, at WMoneyBall. At WMoneyBall is the handle there. We follow all of our guests. We tweet about the world of sports analytics. And we take questions from you guys. So let us know what you're thinking about. Just done interviewing Eric Lorig. Eric was here in the studio. Eric was a NFLer for about six seasons, including with the Saints. We got some good scoop from him on the breeze and what is. You like. mean especially with the Bucks? Oh yeah, those four years with the Bucks. I'm sure. I'm sure that was the <laughs> highlight. I mean, four years with the Bucks, man. That's a good run. Plus two with the Saints after playing at Stanford. That was fun. Always fun to talk with Eric. Have him in studio in the next half hour. Aaron Schatz, always fun to talk with Aaron Schatz. Aaron's been on our show many times over the years, long time friend of the show. Aaron, good morning to you. Welcome back. Hey, good morning, guys. Um, I assume you're calling in from Boston this morning, yes? I am not, actually. I am on the road. I am in Louisville, uh, Kentucky, which is the headquarters of Edge Sports, which ah. is a company that now owns Football Outsiders, my website. And right, then right. I am off. Atlanta from here. You are. Super Bowl 53. Yep. To, when, when are you heading down there, Aaron? 
I'm heading down Thursday night. Well, we're gonna we're gonna be there. If you if you slip down a little early, you're a, a media kind of guy these days. We're gonna be on Media Row doing a show down there Thursday afternoon. Sorry to not cross paths with you, but it should be a lot of fun. How many Super Bowls have you been to, Aaron? This will be my second. All right, which was the other one? Uh, Forty nine. Which was who? After Patriots my- Seahawks. Oh, that's I a good see. One. Okay, that's a good game. Exactly. In Arizona. It rains in Arizona roughly six days a year, and four of them were that week. <laughs> <laughs> hey, listen, real quickly, Aaron, for those of you who don't know you, Aaron runs the football analytics website, Football Outsiders. He is one of the real godfathers in football analytics. He is the co-creator, at least maybe the creator, of DVOA, which is one of the first advanced analytics numbers in football. He writes for ESPN.com. He writes for ESPN the magazine. He's got a podcast, Off the Charts Podcast, and you can follow him. It's a good follow on Twitter, at F-O underscore A-Shots, at F-O underscore A-Shots. Shots is S-C-H-A-T-Z, Aaron Shots. Anyway, Aaron, there's a little bit of background on you. What are you most looking forward to about this Super Bowl in your time in Atlanta? Uh, this is this is the closest Super Bowl I can remember. We had the Patriots with a 50.5% chance of winning Super Bowl 49. We have them with a 50.1% chance. Really? Oh, my goodness. All right. It does, it, I guess it does get a little closer than that, but not something we're going to see very often. No, uh, it's hard to get closer than that. So, Aaron, you know, the, uh, the market's opened favoring the Rams, and some of the analytics – models floating around including Massey Peabody have a slight favorite on the Rams why do you think it is that you guys have a little bit more weight on the Pats enough to pull them up even I think it has to do with the weight of recent games it probably has to do with how each system weights recent games versus older games because the Patriots had you know they've had a couple of really big losses this year but for the most part, those games were earlier in the season. Mm-hmm. It's very, it's very strange the the way the Patriots' season has gone uh, because they had these just huge losses that top teams normally don't have, like the the losses that they had to Jacksonville, uh, Tennessee, to, Detroit, to Tennessee. Right, you don't normally have top teams. They had uh, four games this year where their DVOA rating for that game was minus thirty percent or worse. And the Rams, Chiefs, and Chargers had a total of zero games like that. So, Aaron, and the Patriots had four. Let's jump in real quickly and, and just do a quick <clears throat> tutorial on DVOA. Can you remind us what goes into that calculation and what's intended to do? Sure. It's, 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 uh, it, it involves uh, measuring the success on every play compared to the down and distance. So success rate, which I know a lot of people use now, mm-hmm. but giving extra value for long plays, taking away value for losses. Then it compares every play to a baseline that's based on the situation, the down and distance, the score of the game at the end of the game, and it adjusts for opponent to get an overall efficiency rating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, you guys created this thing a number of years ago, right? And uh, I think Yeah, it's, this is my little baby. It's fair to say it was more or less, well, it was one of the first advanced analytics numbers in football, Yes. Yeah, I mean, I think we were the first site to really do football analytics for a wider audience. There were sites that were very focused on gambling or very focused on fantasy. We were the first site that did football analytics that was focused basically just on football, mm-hmm. on trying to figure out which teams were good and bad, which teams were going to win and lose, not necessarily gambling. Mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So you did that for how many years before Edge Analytics comes in and says, hey, we think you guys would make an interesting asset in our portfolio. Would you be interested in partnering up here? So that happened about a year ago or so. But how long had you been on your own before that? Uh, I started the site in 2003. Okay. So 15 years. That's a good long run. That's great. All right. So what has been, I'm sure it's been an interesting year with these new guys floating around and new ideas. In what way are you going about things differently from your relationship with Edge? Well, we're definitely, I think, concentrating a little bit more now on things like uh, fourth down decision making. I mean, we did a lot of work on that in the past, but one of the problems that I had was that I never did a really good expected points added model. Mm-hmm. And that's what Edge specializes in. Mm-hmm. So that marriage has been really great for that. Uh, it's also just been, um, if anybody's ever worked for themselves and then gone to work for a company, it's quite an adaptation. Yeah, I would. <laughs> I have Says co-workers that... now. I have Slack now. Like all of these things that you know people have during their days that I I now have people that I work with, which I'm not used to having. Right, and you're in Louisville, Kentucky, in the middle of January for some reason. You know, where, where the bosses here. are. It's north enough that it snows here. Uh huh. So, um, that tell us a little bit more about how you might be thinking about football differently from having these guys because Ed, Edge works. You know, they worked with in the NFL before they got involved with you guys, and they they work a lot with the, with teams on decision making. They run simulations, which is a different way to do analytics. Are you thinking about football any differently as a result of hanging out with those guys for a year? Um. I don't think I'm thinking about football any differently, but it's been a good sharing of like meeting of the minds, sharing of ideas. Uh, you know, I, I, I think of, I'm, I'm thinking more about player efficiency and team efficiency. They think in more sort of, uh, uh, global terms about what works and doesn't work for all teams overall. And I think it's been a good meeting of the minds mm-hmm. between sort of those two angles. Mm-hmm. We're talking to Aaron Schatz. Aaron is the founder of footballoutsiders.com. He was the creator of DVOA, one of the first advanced analytics numbers in football. He's He writes for ESPN, ESPN, the magazine. He has a podcast called Off the Charts. Aaron's a longtime friend of the show. Aaron, you're also a longtime fan of the Pats. So as a close watcher up there, and you've been through, you know, all of it with those guys, what do you make of this team? Um, and and y- your model says 50-50. What do you think the real prospects are? Well, I think that I would lean Patriots in this game because a couple of matchup things. Uh, there are places where the Rams' defense is weak. Uh, looking at personnel-type things, we get personnel data from partners at Sports Info Solutions. And, for example, the Rams have been pretty weak against runs from 11 personnel and passes from 21 personnel. So if the Patriots go sort of anti-standard, you know, they spread things out and run, and then they group things up heavy and pass, I think that they'll have an advantage over the Rams from that. Um, This team, it's sort of surprising that they made it this far. I mean, I've been sort of riding the Kansas City Chiefs bandwagon Really the early part of the season. All right. I, I thought that that was the best team in the league. Our numbers had that as the best team in the league. So I did not expect the Patriots to make it back to another Super Bowl. This was, this was the lowest Patriots team in our numbers for the regular season, 2005. Right, right. But like a lot of Patriots teams in recent years, they inc- improved as the course of the season went along. Right. Sort of right off September. It's, it's, 
it's a little weird. You have to ask almost if you have to use a, a different formula for them than you do for other teams right. when you try to consider how much of your priors you're considering when you look at them in October because they do tend to struggle in September and then and then play so much better over the course of the rest of the season, and they did the same thing this year. As a forecaster, one of the things that I think that's, that is difficult here with the Patriots is that there's two shrinkages that we want to think about, typically. The preseason forecast, which can linger all the way to the end of the season, or your early thoughts. And I think everyone's early thoughts about the Patriots was this was not a, a, a Super Bowl level Patriots team. So if you're going to think backwards that way, you're going to potentially move them down. On the other hand, you've got the reverse, the fact that they're here all the time, that they that just always seem to be right at the top, that they improve, pushes you in the other way. And maybe they're just, I don't really know how to really to, to knit these two together in a, in a constructive, data-driven way. And I, and I think well, the other one is, sorry to interrupt, but the other one is, you, you know, you mentioned some of these early losses to Tennessee or Detroit. Do we treat those differently because it's the Patriots and maybe they're almost using these games, you know, they are not take, treat, they're not, uh, a, a bad loss against a bad team is somehow not as impactful for their kind of end of the season prediction than other teams. Right, I think that the Patriots were considered a Super Bowl favorite going into the season. I don't think that people went into this season thinking, oh, this isn't a really good Patriots team. I think that they went into the season thinking, this is the Patriots, or are the they're the AFC favorites? They were the yeah. AFC favorites. I mean, we didn't know what Patrick Mahomes would do mm-hmm. before the season. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, I mean, the, the team in our projections that we got most wrong was Kansas City because you just couldn't project that you can't project that any rookie quarterback. I mean, he wasn't a rookie, but a first year quarterback right. was going to do what Mahomes did. But it's interesting because you think about top teams with top quarterbacks. Green Bay also had a tough start. Green Bay lost to Washington. They tied Minnesota in a game that they they you know came very close to losing. And so, you know, what did that slow start tell you about Green Bay versus what did the slow right. start for the Patriots right. tell you about the Patriots? It right. turns out the slow start for Green Bay told you right. more about how good Green Bay would be for the whole year. But the slow start for the Patriots, again, it was another one of these weird Septembers where they go 2-2 two and two and they have big losses and everybody starts writing them off. And then as the season goes along, they improve. Uh, you know, so, Aaron, how we much had, is that we had, real? We had, Chris Collin- we had Chris Collinsworth on the show a couple weeks ago, and he brought up this exact issue. And he had an explanation for it. So if, if you want to distinguish the Packers from the Pats on that front, you, might, you need to understand something about what they're trying to do, I guess. And Collinsworth said his theory is that they are playing different schemes. They're practicing different schemes early in the year. Like one year, you know, one game they'll play man, one game they'll play zone, you know, favor one over the other. Just not because they're necessarily trying to win that game or match up especially well against that team, Jacksonville or whoever, but that they want to get flexible and good at these varied schemes so that by the end of the year they can go back and forth as needed and be able to do it successfully. So he's literally sac- this was the theory anyway, sacrificing early season performance in order to be more facile later in the year. And that may be possible. And then we have to ask as prognosticators, which teams are doing that? Is it only the Patriots? Right. Are there other teams that we should be treating in that way? And so you know, when a new coach takes over a new team, how do we know that he is or isn't using that strategy? Right. So Aaron, this is Eric Bradlow. I want to ask you a question. Um let's say the game's now over. 
and I show you the box score, or even not just the box score, but the advanced stats that you've been tracking, but I take the score away, what will you be looking at that says, I see why the Patriots won or I see why the Rams won? Is it, will you be looking at time of possession? Will you be looking at DVO? What, what will you be looking at that will give you, an, or even maybe while the game is going on, what will you be looking at that will be your indicators of how the game is going beyond what we just see in the score? Well, I mean, turnovers are the most impactful plays, the hardest to predict, but the most impactful. So obviously, if you're looking backwards, you look at turnover margin. Yards per play is also very helpful. Number of plays run has turned out to be a big thing. There have been a number of games, the Patriots keep getting involved in these games, where they actually lose the yards per play. They're less efficient on a yards per play basis, but they run like twice as many plays as the other team. And as long as you're being efficient enough to continue moving the chains, you don't have to be the more efficient team as long as you're running more plays. Hmm. That's what happened in the Chiefs game, and it's what happened in the Super Bowl against the Falcons two years ago. You know, Aaron, that that raises this issue of uh, consistent play success versus explosiveness. And, you know, looking backwards, if you want to explain why a team won or lost, you might put your finger on explosiveness. But it turns out that explosiveness is very difficult to predict going forward that the far better predictor is are you reliably moving the chains, essentially. And what you've just described yeah. about the Pats is maybe not as explosive a team, but very good at staying ahead of the chains and having play success, even if it's just a, just barely succeeding. Yeah. you. The thing is that, you know, succeeding, safely succeeding, is more consistent than just barely succeeding, because if you're just barely succeeding, yes. sometimes you won't be succeeding. Right. So you have to make sure you get over that certain success hump, or else you're not, or else you're not moving the chain. So you're not getting a play advantage. Right. So th- this is, you know, I, I just think it's an interesting distinction in some models, and people people get this wrong. It's just the difference between looking back and describing what produced wins versus predicting what will produce future wins and explosiveness we underrate i think many models underrate this kind of consistency that the pats seem to be showing this year hey listener we have a phone call let's take a question from elliot in missouri good morning elliot what do you got good morning how you guys doing good good how are you good thank you hey so i was just uh wondering with the analytics i've been listening to you guys show now for the last three weeks or so so with the next deal but um my, my question was, have, is there a model that you guys utilize for former players um, and coaches that play against teams? Because I just noticed all the years I've watched playoff, Super Bowl, NFL in general, you take Brable in Tennessee now and um, Patricia now in Detroit when they're playing against the Patriots. As a Patriots fan, I know we both are going to lose. You know, then I look at in the Super Bowl, Chris Long and uh, Garrett Blunt last year talked about how they chipped off um, the Eagles with a lot of the Patriots plays. And now this year you're going to have um, Cook with the Rams doing the same thing. Does, does that factor into any analytics and models that you guys utilize um, with that? Great. Elliot, appreciate the question. So Elliot's asking what advantage there might be to the other side having a former coach or a former player. From a team, so he's noting that the Pats lost to the Titans and Lions this year, both coached by guys who used to be on Belichick's staff. Um, what, what do you think? What do you think, Aaron? Do you, do you have any insight on that? 
I don't. It's an interesting question and one that I think we're going to have a chance to look at a lot closer over the next few years because you're going to have all of the children of McVeigh. Right? <laughs> children of so you don't want to just look at the Belichick tree. You also mm-hmm. want to look at the tree of other coaches. Right. And I think, you know, over the next couple of years, we're going to have a lot of uh, former McVeigh assistants or people who worked with McVeigh who are going to be now coaching other teams, right? Uh, Zach Taylor is supposed to be going to Cincinnati, for example. Mm-hmm. Uh, LaFleur uh, is now in Green Bay. So we'll get some more examples of that to see whether there maybe is a trend mm-hmm. where underdogs are more likely to win if they're if they have a familiarity with the favorite but mm-hmm. it's not something i've ever done work on mm-hmm. aaron what do you think about what do you make really of the kansas city game especially as a, a guy who likes the chiefs both analytically and as a fan we we pondered this last week are we overreacting to the fact that the Pats won there. You know, there's so much chance involved in football, and you got to come away with one of two stories. Either, no, yeah, the models are right, the Rams are actually a couple points better, or alternatively, you know, yeah, yeah, the, the Pats have gotten better over the course of the season, but we kind of have that in our model. What's really going on special here is that you've got Belichick and Brady, two of the best all time, and they've been here before, and they know how to get it done in clutch situations. And they did it in Kansas City. You know, we saw it with our, mm-hmm. with our, with our eyes. So which of those do you believe? Do you think we're overreacting to what happened in Kansas City, or do you think that's kind of a legit story? Well, I don't know if anybody is overreacting, because I don't know if anybody comes away from that game saying Kansas City wasn't as good as we thought they were. I think most people come away saying Kansas City was as good as we thought they were, and it was a close game, and the Patriots just happened to win. I mean, among other things, both of those defenses looked gassed at the end of the game, and the Patriots won the coin flip, right? If the Chiefs win right. the coin flip, yeah, you right. may have a completely different Seriously. ending. Seriously. So I don't, think it's, I don't think you come away from that game feeling like the Chiefs are, are, uh, are overrated. Uh, I mean, yes, their offense didn't do anything in the first half, but at halftime we were all saying, oh, there's no way you can keep the Chiefs' offense down this long. And guess what? It turns out, there's no way you could keep the Chiefs' offense down that long. <laughs> yeah. And we knew that their defense uh, was a problem, and uh, guess what? Their defense was a problem. So, it was a, you know, when a close game goes the other way, I don't think you walk away thinking, oh, my, well, all of my prior beliefs were wrong. Now, if the Patriots had won that game by, like, 28, right, then you walk away maybe thinking, Oh, maybe we weren't right about this. I mean, the previous game against the Chargers, right? The Patriots dominated right, that game. Right, right. And that's just Even not what the, happened. The score ended up closer because the Chargers came back somewhat in the second half. But, I mean, it was, you know, whatever, 28-7 to 7 at halftime. That's much more of a game that makes you question why you had the Chargers rated so high that, than, than this Chiefs game where they kept it close. So, Aaron, you had talked about uh, early versus late games in the Patriots and how much weight to put on them. How about Jared Goff? I mean, you know, our producer Matt Datz has put some stats in front of us. In the first 11 games this season, he completed 68% of his passes, had 26 touchdowns and 6 interceptions. In the last 6 games, 58% of his passes, 7 touchdowns, 7 interceptions. So maybe, how are you thinking about my big uncertainty for the Rams is, I'm not convinced... Jared Goff is going to play a good game. I think he'll play a game consistent with his last eight games, which has been an average NFL quarterback. How do you see it? Well, this is one of the hardest things in football analytics is to figure out just what is a trend. What matters? What is just random chance? And what is these these eight games really are different? That's enough games to say that there's a real difference. Right. It's one of the hardest things to figure out. 
Um, I will say, as far as Goff, two interesting things about this decline. The first is it doesn't track exactly to when Cooper Cup got injured. Everybody says it's because of Cooper Cup's injury, but the first game without Cooper Cup was the game against Kansas City where they won and they scored 54 points. Right. The other thing is their defense has improved over the same time. So overall, with the Rams, you don't really get a decline over the course of the season because while their offense has declined, their defense has improved. So let me ask you a follow-on question then. You know, we talked in the first half hour of the show that we could see one of two Super Bowls happening. Last year's Eagles-Patriots Super Bowl where, let's call it, there wasn't much of a lick of defense, as they say. Or is this more going to be like a, you know, Giants-Patriots Super Bowl where, you know, the defensive line wins the game, the finals 20-17? to I'm not really just asking about the over-under. I'm more asking about how do you see this game playing out? I think offensively. I think offenses rule the roost in this game. These teams were, I mean, yes, they've both been better on defense in recent weeks, but they were both average defenses this year, and they were both top four offenses. And I think that its offense will win. I mean, not necessarily to the extent of last year's Super Bowl, which was absurd, yeah. but I think that... Maybe the Patriots will actually force them to punt this year. Who knows? Yeah, we'll win over the defenses in this one. So, Aaron, in the last five minutes or so that we have in the segment with you, we want to talk about where you see the world of football analytics going. It feels a little bit like we're in an inflection point as new data become available. The heck, the NFL itself has hired – they stole Mike Lopez from academia to run a whole new stats program. You're right in the middle of this. Where, where do you see it going? What's happening now? What, what do you think is going to be happening five years from now? I think everything's – You know, a lot of things are going sort of two directions. One is the things are going towards using those next-gen stats, using all the stats that are developed by the NFL from the chips and the pads, and it's just a question of how much the NFL wants to share that stuff with the rest of the world and how much they want to keep it to themselves. But, you know, doing analysis with that, like things like cornerback separation, uh, using – you know, machine learning to figure out coverages so that you don't need to chart coverages. They're just figured out by machine learning from how the players are moving around on each play. Things are really moving in that direction. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, as far as sort of like what in analytics is of interest to people and what, I guess, sells, I think everything is going towards more gambling Mm. because of the, uh, the, um, you know, Supreme Court overturn of the law that stated that sports gambling was illegal in, in every state. And so now multiple states are legalizing sports gambling and everything is going in the direction of sports gambling. And I think there's going to be a lot more analytics that are focused on helping people gamble because people are going to want to gamble. So let's talk about that. I want to talk about that here as a group. How do we feel about that kind of from an ethical perspective when we know that the vast, vast majority of bettors are not going to be profitable. So in, in in some sense, how can you say you're providing valuable information to them when our models might not even be valuable, right? So it, what are we selling whenever we're selling information if it's not, right? So is, it seems to be that there's an ethical issue here. A little bit of one, I suppose. I mean, look, at a certain point, if you want to do the cool stuff involving, like, play, you know, cool quarterback separation and analysis, you have to make a living. Uh, and it's the living, you know, for, for a long time, making a living has involved doing a lot of fantasy football. 
projections and fantasy football writing because that's where the interest has been. And so now things may move more towards gambling. Uh, you know, at a certain point, if you want to do this for a living, you have to make a living uh, unless you're working for a team. And we're not yet at the point where teams have these big analytic departments, certainly not these big analytics departments that anybody's listening to. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you're, still selling inform- you're still selling information that is used for entertainment. Well, I mean, that, that's really that, what it comes down to. That's where I would have gone, which is it's not you, – you can't – we can't so much – promise profitability but you can promise entertainment is that's really what it's about if you play fantasy sports most people play it for for just the fun of it not Mm -hmm. necessarily because they want to profit from it and they want to be as good as they can and and they enjoy the process gambling obviously does it has a different calculus to it than fantasy football in that sense so i agree entirely that we're in the entertainment business i mean in in some ways this, this is the entertainment business in the same way as when i was a radio disc jockey i mean you you serve what the people want you, when you're in the entertainment business, you do have to give people what entertains them. So, Aaron, this is Eric Bradlow again. I'd be interested in your thought on the following, which relates to that. Maybe the issue is that um, it's more about what we always talk about on this show, about the effect size. It's not that information can't help you, but when you bet, there's this darn thing called the VIG that you pay. Mm-hmm. So the problem is is that we're getting more information, and maybe that increases your odds of predicting against the spread, but it's at the margin. Maybe it's a 1%, 2% advantage, but you're paying 10% in most cases, sometimes 15 So it, do you see anything coming along in analytics that either you're going to build into your models that's going to have a massive effect size difference, or do you think we're mature enough now that we're still operating at that we're now operating at the margin? Uh, it's not as much that we're mature enough that we're operating at the margin as that football is just there's just too much random. Yeah, yeah. it's not 162 game baseball. Let's take baseball as an example. Baseball, there's 162 games, and the pitcher. Right, who is the pitcher and how good is the pitcher has an outsized effect on what the line is for each game. Compare that to 16 games for football. There's just a lot more randomness, and we're never really going to be we're never going to be able to take take that out of, of of the game. And you just have to accept that. So, Aaron, let me ask you: um, forget who you think is going to win the game, because I know Cade's going to ask you that in just a second. How much variability do you think there is in this game? You just mentioned inherent randomness. If I told you the Patriots won by 14, if I told you the Rams won by 14, like, would you be shocked either direction? Do you have, in your own mind, that much variation in the outcome, or is it much narrower in your mind? No, I mean, absolutely that much variance. Uh, I doubt each t- either team wins by 28, but certainly there's enough variance that either team could win by 14 and right. not feel like they dominated the other team. Right, right, right. All right, Aaron, to put you on the spot here at the very end, just before we go to break, in the end, what, what's your prediction for this game? I lean Patriots. I, I, like I said, I think it's close to 50-50. Um, I mean, you know, for the gamblers out there, the line is two and a half in most places, but some places you can get three, and I think Rams plus three is a nice, you know, a nice little counter bet, but if yeah. you ask me straight up, who do I think is going to win? I would lean Patriots. And you like the over as well. You think this is going to be an offensive show? I think it's going to be an offensive show. All right, listen, Aaron. Thanks, man, for taking the time. Wish you the best with your work there in Louisville. Enjoy Atlanta, and keep up the work, man. We enjoy following you. Hey, thanks for having me on, guys. You bet. That was Aaron Schatz, creator of Football Outsiders, longtime football analyst, creator of DVOA, writer at ESPN.com, podcaster at Off the Charts. You can follow him on Twitter as well. He's a great follow-up there. All right, that has been three quarters of Wharton Moneyball. We still have a quarter to go. Come back and join us after the break. 
Welcome back to Wharton Moneyball. Two hours of sports analytics live every Wednesday morning, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Broadcasting from Sirius XM Studios in Huntsman Hall. This is Cade Massey hosting with Audie Weiner, Shane Jensen, Eric Bradlow. Some combination of us are here every Wednesday morning. You can join the conversation. Last half hour, jump in here. 1-844-WHARTON, 1-844-942-7866. We had a, a, a new listener call last segment. You don't have to wait a year of listening. You can call. This guy would only be listening for a few weeks. Jump in. Ask a good question. Email is businessradio at SiriusXM.com. You can reach us that way, businessradio at SiriusXM.com. Or hit us up on Twitter. The handle up there is at WMoneyBall, at WMoneyBall. We get questions and comments from folks on a regular basis up there. It's a great way to reach out to us. Just off the phone with Aaron Schatz, Football Outsiders head, visiting the home office at Louisville, Kentucky, on his way to Atlanta. Oh, we're, sounds like we're going to miss him. How about we go to Atlanta, fellas? What do you think? How, you want to go down to warmer weather? Take in the Super Bowl? Not that warm, but it's warmer than here. Warmer than here. We're 12 <laughs> degrees when we woke up this morning. Yeah. I'll take Atlanta. So we're going to do a live show from Media Row tomorrow in Atlanta. We did this for the first time two years ago in Houston. Had a great time with it. SiriusXM. Yeah. Basically, SiriusXM sets up a, a big space, and they have you know four you know, different areas for people to broadcast, and they have the big shows from SiriusXM down there, and then we're off here on the side stage. But it's a lot of fun. It's just it's, a big... It's a blast. It, it's a I'm going to miss this one. I'm, I'm going to miss you guys. You can still, it's going to be a great it's, time. It's, it's not committed too late. to his class. It's not too late. It's not too late, man. Flight's Yeah, maybe, maybe I'll just be there. Maybe you guys will walk in. I'll just be sitting there. But you too, <laughs> you too can listen on SiriusXM 132, business radio powered by the Warden School, oh, Thursday, 2 to 4 p.m. live. 2 to 4, I will, of we, course. We got some, we're going to be talking about things and we're going to have a few guests and it'll be fun down there from media row manana headed down there in the morning all right guys we'll catch some details on the super bowl of course at the end of the show between now and then let's make a quick run through some other sports we've been all football all the time so far but there are other sports so for example nba what's going on right now in the nba well the Golden State Warriors have decided to start taking things a little bit seriously and let's say they're running at about 80 percent now so they've won 11 straight games um, they've now got the top point differential in the Western Conference. I think a couple weeks ago they had the eighth best point differential in the league. They're now up to two. Mm-hmm. The Bucks still have the highest at plus nine point seven, but the uh, Warriors have started to you know take flight. Uh, Eleven straight wins, and I don't actually think they're playing particularly well right now. Um, it would not surprise me if their win streak goes somewhere between. I've looked at their future games. By the way, our home seventy sixers are playing at. Warriors Thursday night. Um, it would not surprise me if the Warriors end up with a fifteen to twenty game winning streak here. They are. What's, what's just, the record, by the way? Their their record no, right no, now. No, no, no. The longest record. Oh, streak. it's thirty three in a row, I believe, by the Los Angeles Lakers. I think thirty three is almost is, half a season. But it is, but I think I may have this wrong. Somebody won something close to that just a few years. ago. It might have been the Warriors the year they went seventy three and nine. I think they won thirty or thirty one. What's straight the best or that the Bulls? The Bulls had the most win total. They were seventy two and ten, right? Which was beaten by uh, the the uh, Warriors, Warriors yeah. the year the Warriors lost in the finals what... to the Cavaliers. Actually, they were seventy three and nine. Did the Rockets get on a streak when they had Lynn? Was that part of the? Or am I making that they up? They did. They had a long streak, like but 20, nothing. Twenty games. Yeah, something around. It's hard to imagine streaks that long because the home field advantage is so prominent. So hey, about half your games in the streak are, are on the road. So yeah. right. Yeah, you know, no, even I, a great team I, I, is I get, right. I just you know, may, and may, I think this is kind of related. Can you give me some context on just how historic? Like, 
I feel like a 10, like a, a point differential of almost 10 points, an average point differential is huge, right? It is huge. I and, mean, the Warriors and, have, the Warriors, though, the last couple years have been in the 11 to 13 range right. to show you how great they are. But you're so, right. So, you might I find mean, when, a, you, when you are winning by an average of like 10 points <laughs> a game, I think that does tend to swamp out oh, sure, that home field advantage, right? Sure, yeah, so, but there are probably about 90 to 95% at home. And they're probably closer to seventy to eighty percent on the road. This the, we, when the Warriors uh, either almost or, or or did break the streak, or there was a calculation done at five thirty eight, and I, I remember trying to replicate it. It's myself, and it was the, the streak was. Yeah, we talked about one that of on the, the air. one of the least likely streaks. Um, this was in, in history. Shane, let me, yeah. let me ask you. 20, but it wasn't. But it wasn't as rare as you think. Well, that's real, because they were dominant. But real quickly, the reason you're saying it was less likely is that they're very good. <laughs> well, but because they play very different strengths of schedule. So that's right. Put it, putting that streak up against some opponents would be less, much less impressive. So you really need to norm. And take a look situations. at the bottom. I mean, this is true in basketball more more so than any other sport. Is that bottom is just appallingly right. bad. Right. Yeah. And right. and you can feast on them. Yeah, Shane. I was just going to point out if you look every season, let's. Let me answer the question you asked. Let's take every season, and let's take the team with the maximum point differential every season, and let's look at the distribution of those maximum point differentials. So 9.7 right now, would I'm guessing, would probably be in the top quartile, but not more than that. I see, yeah, yeah. For the team with the highest point differential in the league. Right now it's 9.7. Matter of fact, you think, well, maybe the Warriors will catch them. It's not so easy with this many games to move up like they're two point four yeah. points behind. That's actually no. A I mean, lot I just more look. It's over the number of double games. the next highest team. No, in no, the no. East. I'm saying they're. Ex- well, this is another thing. It's glad we're a statistics show. Their exceedance is very high. Yeah. Them to the second highest is very high. But them, it's mainly because yeah. there's a lot of compression, not because they're overly great. So let's talk about those numbers real quickly. Because in the East, the Bucks have the best record, but barely over the Raptors. But they have very different point differentials. So the Bucks are plus point nine nine point seven. The Raptors are plus 5.4. So as Shane says, almost twice. Yet, if you go to 538's NBA playoff forecasters, if you want to ask who's going to, who's going to represent the East, 538 really likes the Raptors. They think they're... We're, we'll have those guys on the show once we get through football to talk to us about the NBA. But and I noticed, uh, well, I noticed that they like the Raptors better than the Bucks. And I, I don't know if that would be something... I mean, obviously, they have kind of an ELO-type model that I assume right. is not... Doesn't start anew every season. The Raptors certainly were much better than the Bucks last season. But I, I don't know it, how much it, legacy it, it, it there is no, there. It doesn't shrink. They shrink it pretty hard back down. But it does not oh, okay. start anew. Well, another absolutely does another not start. rationale really? as well. Yeah. They don't another, start everyone at fifteen hundred. They take your right. previous score, and I think it's about. They have a prior on the Elo. I didn't yeah. know yeah. that. Oh yeah, yeah. Why wouldn't you? Well, this is kind of how you can Elo's chart like the Patriots over like you know. But twenty but you years have to, or whatever. That would be a function of player retention and coaches and things like this. You have to have some model for how much you retain. Unless you say no, oh, I, don't I don't think, think they're, they're doing I, that. I mean, ideally you would, but I don't think they do. I see. So they're just gonna they're gonna say we know historically that we should shrink by this much from the end of year last. Yeah, I mean, they I probably see. have some. Okay. Sh- uh, their shrinkage factor is probably tuned to the data in a predictive sense, but, but at the team level, not at the, at the team level. level. Another yeah. another possibility that you bring up. I remember studying this as a graduate student, where 
when you look at the contribution to a strength parameter, you may want to slash really high numbers. So you might say, well, 9.7 is much more than 5.4. Yeah, but maybe a 20-point win is not worth that much more than a 12-point win. Mm -hmm. So it could also be that these models are recognizing that blowout games happen, and they really don't tell that much more about the strength of the team. ELO doesn't care about the team. No, ELO doesn't. Just just like if you were to take sophisticated models, A football predictive model, and, and you were to base it on point differential or something like that, you'd probably want to truncate that at some point, too, because winning by, like, four touchdowns versus two touchdowns. So while true... It is better than models that don't that neglect point differential. Oh, of altogether. course, so yes. Course. This is, this but surprisingly, that. I mean, so so. But Elo is a pretty good model, and adding point differentials and points adds your just a little bit in football. I don't know how it does in other sports, but I mean, it adds e- a little the, bit. The, I mean, Elo is a pretty good model compared to it. It's not good for the no. betting the market. I mean, it doesn't add any value to the market, so it's fine, yeah. and it has other virtues. But it's, in terms of really being sharp, it's not. It's not that much. Um, other quickly. Have they signed you free agents in baseball since we talked last? Sadly, week? no. Uh, there's there's rumors. A few bullpen guys. Yeah, all, yeah, yeah. Almost Tommy all O'Kane. the bullpen guys yeah, are gone. The bullpens are gone. Yeah, that's like, yeah. The, the, the big deadline? free agents. Is there a deadline? No. 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 What? No. So Bryce Harper could go into the season unsigned. Oh, he, oh yes. He, when did JD Martinez he could, get signed? He could wait till June or July and yeah. just go. You know, like find some very desperate contending team if he wanted to. He might not yeah. want to. What's the, okay, he, give me an over under on the date when he signs. Harper? Oh, I think he'll he'll sign by spring training. That's my. So. Isn't spring training two weeks away? Two weeks away. Yeah. I think he'll sign. Yeah, by. I, I think both him and Machado will be signed by spring training as well. But it might but go right up until the pitchers and catchers. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So we're gonna yeah. say the next couple weeks. Fine, I mean, these fine, guys fine. want a lot of money, and that's yeah. really what what the big thing is all about. Martinez last year, I think, which I think is probably the closest analog. Mm-hmm. I think it was only a few days before Feb twenty five. Feb twenty five. Yeah. yeah. Also, Adi, it's not just they yeah. want a lot of money, but as you mentioned last week, they want a lot of years. That's right. It's it's they yeah, can have a lot of money for a shorter amount of years, but oh, they don't yeah. want that. Okay, y'all, y'all may not know this, but college football signing day, the second one is coming up Wednesday. They, they, it's a different world now. There's two signing days. There's one in December and one in in early February. Alabama's is, the one in December, and then the rest <laughs> of the ones in the, <laughs> the next one. So, something like that, yeah. But what has happened is that there, it's a little bit anticlimactic here at the end. That most of the players sign early. There's still a lot of action, but it's a little bit less of a big deal. But we'll do some kind of recap next Wednesday. There are other sports, some interesting things. We talked about Serena's meltdown last Wednesday because it happened the night before we were on the show. But of course, they played the finals over the weekend. We talked some about the Djokovic Nadal final. We didn't talk about the women's draw. Osaka, second major yeah. in a row. Yeah, what's interesting about that match is there was a meltdown in that match by her. By Osaka. By Osaka. This is what was really impressive. She was up, I think it was, 5-3, serving for the match, and something like 40-15. Lost that game, did not win another game that set, so lost the second set 7-5. So she not only lost her serve, but got broken again, yeah. and she had two match balls. And this is where what a lot of the commentators were saying, she got her act together and won the third set 6-4. So what people were impressed by for a young player was she, ha- I don't want to say a Serena-like meltdown, 5-1, 40-15, but it was 5-3, 40-15. Yeah. She didn't win another game that set, but still was playing a two-time Wimbledon champion, Petra Kvitova, and came back and regrouped and won the third set. So, right. so there was some That's talk awesome. uh, that the Serena meltdown was due to an injury. Was there any, any comment from you on that, that she really had injured herself and, and they just really couldn't play anymore? I, I saw that play where yeah. she turned her ankle a little yeah. bit. 
I never saw anything to suggest. Maybe had she slowed down a little bit in the last few games of that match? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think she had. There's no doubt about it. But enough that she would win 8 out of 36 points of the remain. No. Not to the degree that I one, saw. As a, as a pure analyst, I'd, I'd step back and say that kind of deviance well, has to have let's, an let's explanation. Just, one second. Just to build on something we talked about earlier in the show about the pass interference and the leverage. I just want to remind everybody in that Serena match. She was up 5-1-40-15, hit an ace, and it was called a foot fault. Now, you could make an argument. I'm not saying she couldn't have won the match if it wasn't. She could have. But the match was over. I mean, she was walking towards the front of the net, and the foot fault is called. So you could... I'm not saying it's the pass. Did she make one? Was there a video of that? Was it an actual foot fault? Close. Close. Yeah, she did. But it's the kind of thing, like Eric said, it's like you don't really call it all the time. But I think it's it's nicely connected to the Osaka point that Serena didn't quite recover. It was later in the match, but she couldn't recover there in a way that Osaka did. And that's such an important quality in athlete. You're you're rarely going to play a perfect game all the way through. The trick is to not let... Last mistake, you know, create the next. And Osaka's now number one in the world. So it's fun to have new blood, I think, and and she seems like a very compelling character, both on the court and off the court. Great fun. You know, there are other sports. As soon as we roll through the end of football, we'll start paying more attention to them. But golf, for example, it's not that far before we start having some interesting golf tournaments. What's happened recently, Eric? Well, so last week was the Farmer Insurance Open, not a particularly a major tournament in any way, but the big part was this was Tiger Woods' first tournament of when I say the year, not just the calendar year, but you know, the 2019 golf season starts in 2018. Matter of fact, this is tournament 11 of the year. Tiger didn't play any of the other tournaments. Um, He looked pretty good. He made the cut. Uh, He shot 67 in the last round, ended up tied for 20th. Um, He got better each round that went on. Um, Comparing, He played this tournament last year, comparing all the advanced stats this year to last year. He drove the ball better, farther and more accurate. He made more greens and regulation this year. His putter kind of let him down, except in the last round. And then the other news, this gets back, I don't call it new blood, but the number one player in the world, who's Justin Rose, won the tournament. And all the top players played this tournament. And if you look at the leaderboard at the end, it was Rory McIlroy and Adam Scott. And, you know, they were all the top players, Hideki Matsuyama, were all up near the front. So wow. it was an exciting yeah. Sunday to watch. Where, where was it? Uh, it was in La Jolla. It was at Torrey Pines. Uh, so this, yeah, is yeah, like the Torrey Pines. this is like Tiger's home course. Exactly. Or whatever, fact, he's won, I think, like eight times on this course, and now okay. he's taking a couple weeks break. And so, you know, he said, look, I played way too much last year, uh, but he's ready to roll. Mm-hmm. All right. He looked good. So, fellas, in the last 15 minutes or so, let's talk about NFL. I want to take us there via a question we just got on Twitter. Nathan Lake asks, is improving performance over the course of the season indicative of better coaching? We've talked a lot in the first hour and a half of the show about you know maybe Pat's increase better over the course of the season. Is that one way we could look at? Can we attribute that to the extent that we see it reliably in a team? Can we attribute it to coaching? So I'll go first. I'll say yes, and I'll also say though, be careful though, yeah, because um, you know we talk about it could be it's not really the exact analogy, but it could be that early on in the season. The Patriots are in exploration phase. They could be winning more games, but they're choosing to actually, as you said, Cade, to maximize their ability to play lots of different schemes. So what you treat as better performance in the second half may not be better performance. They just may not be maximizing the same thing in the first half of the season than they're maximizing in the second. It appears that they're playing better, but it's not obvious yeah, that like that's the, the, true. Their objective function right. is somehow a little bit more long, you know, Know, like long view, their objective function is we want to be the best team in football at the end of the
the season, we don't necessarily, whereas, you know, kind of locally optimizing your chance of winning every single game is one way of getting, and fortunately, getting out, but it's not the only way. This is not, not a point of contention between yeah. us, but fortunately they're in the AFC East and they can afford to do that. I think, well, that, I think, that that's, true. A, I think that's a big advantage. I mean, yep. this is a great piece of insight we learned in the last few weeks that the Patriots have more versatility. They have more plays and different strategies, and they hone but, those over the over yeah. the season, and they get them. And it's it's a, it's an enormous effort to get to to have that ability to learn a whole bunch of extra or different types of styles. And this is what leads to that difficult predict for uh, strategies at the end of the season That's because right. they have so many weapons. That's right. And I, I just think it's a very interesting question, a general way, a general question yeah. about coaching. Like, to what extent is it on the coach to improve? To what extent is it reflective of coaching ability to improve a team's performance it, over it's, time? It's, Nathan it's, Lake, thank you for that question. Yeah, it's a, but it's, uh, I think the point also is the odds of the Patriots making the playoffs, given their quality in coaching and Tom Brady and the division they're in, I'm not, it's never won. Yeah. But it's it's really, really high. So again, I go back to they can afford to think about a long-term objective function knowing that the shortest-term objective function is making the playoffs and possibly, in their case, even winning the division. Like, I don't think there's much uncertainty at the beginning of the season yeah. who's going to win that division. Yeah. And that I'm not, I'm not discounting anything they've accomplished. Because yeah. the fact is... Who else can say that? And they've done it like almost 20 straight years. They're yeah. so much better than their division, and they draft worse. So, I mean, we should, again, give them all the credit for that. But I'm saying, a priori, they can afford to experiment. Yeah. All I right, agree. fellas, if you had to bet, what color do you think the Gatorade will be in the Gatorade bath at the end of the game? <laughs> I'm going orange. I've always, I've, classic, I've always right? been That's orange. Classic. I've always been a fan of orange. <laughs> it's really associated with the best coaches. What and is the this best clear? The favorite, them. if if you if there is a bath, the favorite among colors is clear. Who drinks clear Gatorade? I like clear. Gatorade. I mean, <laughs> obviously, somebody's run the numbers and clear Gatorades used more often. I assume yeah. this is an analytics. Just you know, the motivated have a, like uh, line. I might go blue. Standard? I mean, what, I'm gonna go blue. Does anyone check this? I'm guessing the Pats. The Pats don't always do the bath. So oh, so so, so I, I think I think the fat you know the fact that no bath is so high is is no bath is on the a favorite. Okay, do you have a favorite prop? The one that I like genuinely am most interested. in, I think the most intriguing is the largest lead of the game. The over under for the largest lead at any point in the game is fourteen point five. So they they smartly go above fourteen, right? Because yeah. they, they want to get just the other side of that thing. Will anybody lead by more than fourteen at some point in the game? If you had to pick over under, which which way would you go? Uh-huh. I mean, uh, I would say, I would say over on that. Wow. I would say over on that. Over because only because even in these games where the every, every game the Patriot Super Bowl the Patriots play seems to be close at the end. It's not close throughout. You know they yeah, have but, in the Seattle game they came back points two touch. or four, at least fifteen points is a very big lead. Yeah, that's more yeah, than but, one standard deviation. In the but, difference in the end of the but game, at the end of the game. But do you know? Are you calibrating? Yeah, I'm not. But, I'm but not. there's less time. You so basically you're looking at the maximum of these two. Yeah, ra- you yeah. know, random walks across yeah. the. I mean, and, and a there's high. I'm just well. I mean, I don't know. And, and, and you, gonna, I, we don't even have to condition on a close game. It could be a blowout, right? In which sure, case, but, not, you know, but I consider but, that to be a low probability event. There's a blowout. A blowout. Oh, yeah, I'm, one one and six. I would you know, say. Actually, low, I think that's great logic. Well, is it one and six for someone to win that much? In a Super Bowl? I know. I don't. Okay, I, there aren't enough Super Bowls. Okay, I'm. I, I, I thought I was going to go under because I have the intuitive reaction that Audi does. No. But I'm, Shane's talked me into over. I'm over on that one. Yeah. Eric? All right, I'm under. I think I'm over, but I'm over because 
I think the Patriots are going to win the game. So what I'm doing is I'm conditioning on the end boundary, the yeah. final result. And given I think the Patriots are going to win the game, I think this isn't going to be one of those games where they do fall behind I mean, and I, have to catch I'm with up. You, man. I just don't think that's the way this yeah. game you're is going, going you're to play out. You think there's going to be a lead bigger than fourteen and a half at some point? I do, but I think All it'll be. I, I think it'll be. Wow. The, I think it'll be the Patriots leading. I don't think it'll be. Well, one you can have super- either side. So no, I know I get either side, <laughs> but I'm saying I think it'll be because the yeah. Patriots take a big lead, and uh, that's what I think is going to happen yeah. in the game. So will will the Pats convert a fourth down? This is an even money bet. Ooh, convert a fourth down as in? Yeah, that's yeah. surprising. That I, seems... I don't understand why that would be converting. Why that would be an even money bet? I'm strong over on that one. Yeah, right? no, I would say so. I mean, you know, a uh, Brady sneak or something long, like that. Yeah, longest Brady completion over under thirty seven and a half yards. That's a big completion. Um, I'm going to go under. I'm going to go under. Now, what on that. what counts when we think well, about no, no. the distance? Is this a run after two? Of course, it all counts. Yeah. It all yards, counts. Yards from scrimmage. Yards yeah. from scrimmage. Yeah. <laughs> That's not that that much. I mean, thirty-seven and a half. How well, often is that? He yeah, must do that. Want. Want he must do rate. that in, in. I would guess probably half, every other game. Half, yeah, half half half. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going under with Shane. I'm going under as well. Come on, guys, step up. Over. Because I think someone's going to break one. Ah, yeah, clearly. Yeah, Adi. Yeah. Adi's befuddled. He's befuddled completely. Adi, you I'm, can I'm pa- actually going to go under on that. Okay, we got because I think they're gonna, they're not going to pass as much as we usually think they do. Will someone score in the first five minutes? And here the favorite is no minus one forty five that they will not score. Anyone not like that? Anyone want to? I'll take no. I'll take no. Just because I think what it, which both both teams on their first drive are going to really try hard to establish the running game, and so I think whatever long, assuming they're successful. Which, you know, score would entail, it's going to take a long time. I I think it's um, more likely to be no if the Patriots have the ball first. Not Mm -hmm. because I don't think they'll score, but I think the Patriots could try to establish the run. It would not surprise me if Sean McVay tries to dial up the passing game first. Mm. And so I I would be more thinking that the Rams have a... If the Rams get the ball first, they may score a field goal or something. So what do you think about the the line is saying 145? So it's saying... Is it minus 145? Yeah. So so they actually think it's quite likely that they'll score in, uh, in the first five minutes. If it's minus 145 on the yes... Is that, no, minus one forty five is on the no. I was on the no. Okay, so usually the the betters don't like the no. Betters don't like the no, so they try to they overbet. They prop. overbet they, the yes. Yes, the yes. Some props. Yeah, that's nice. <laughs> so it's a good observation. So I, I exactly would guess right. it's unlikely that they're going to score, and and uh, that's so I'm going to go there. They're not going to. Okay, in the last minute and a half, we need the we need your call on the game. Right. So you need the the, the Pat, Pats minus two and a half, and the over under is fifty six. What are your what are your bets? Pats are going to blow them out. I'm Goodness actually predicting gracious. I finally get the Pats blowout Super Bowl. And over then, probably. Over. Okay. Eric? I'm going the same as Shane. I'm, I'm not going for a blowout, but I'm going for Pats cover and over 56 and a half. Okay. Adi. Oh, you should see his face, guys. He's really torn here. Yeah, because I'm, I'm trying to not, not tell stories. So I'm going to take the Rams with the points. <laughs> okay. And uh, I'd like to have three. Can I have three? <laughs> I, we just heard you can get three. Yeah, some nice. You can buy three. Can I, can, can I don't buy. want to buy three. I want, can I get three at one and no, minus one? You got to take it at two and a half. At two and a half. Yeah. All right. I'm still taking the the uh, the. It's hard to do, but I'm going to do it. And I I'm going to go under. Also, you're going under. I admire, so I admire the purity of that. I think I think it's great. I, I'm opposite you on both, but I admire the purity. The models say Rams, but 
you know, I think the models don't have everything in here, and, I, and I'm, I'm persuaded in the end. It's a little bit like betting against Alabama. I, I just don't want to bet against Brady and Belichick in the Super Bowl against this first-year coach and a third-year quarterback. I know. Even if the models say it's really, it's close enough for me to think there's something extra there that the Pats can Can do. I just point out that all three of you are going against me on I know, all. I know. So and you're I the only one actually betting the numbers. Good for you. <laughs> Good for you. Guys, this has been fun. I think we should do it again tomorrow. How about we do it in Atlanta? <laughs> Sounds great. Have fun, guys. All right. That has been another two hours here at Wharton Moneyball. Many thanks to Daniel Bruno. Many thanks to Matty Dots. He's critical. Puts this whole thing together. Really appreciate it from the producer. Um, many thanks to Dion Simpkins in the back, supporting us, listening, eating his bonbons. Always great to have Dion involved. We will be back next time. Between now and then, enjoy your sports. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.